Daniel, when we started with him, was very young. Remember, you have a spot of honor up here, sir. <laughs> Daniel, remember when we began the book of Daniel, was taken to Babylonian to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar University to study to serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar. We estimate, and this is strictly an estimation, I think it's good, plus or minus two years, that knowing what age most of the young men who started to prepare for service in the court of Babylon were, that Daniel was probably about 16, and so that would make the year 622 B.C. Starting at 16, he came, but he had a tremendous background. And I've often thought, of it, in fact, I was thinking about it just recently, I'd love to have met Daniel's parents, mm -hmm. because this young man came ready to go. And so that's something to remember as we think about our own children and pray for the parents that are raising children and uh, the things that are going on, and we'll touch on some today. We're going to begin today with what is the second part of the book. Let me lay the book out for us. Chapters 1 through 6, in one sense, are the auto, or not the auto, the spiritually God-given biography of Daniel. These first six chapters deal basically with his life in chronological uh, order. There is in them a few pieces of very important prophecy, particularly in chapter 2, which we will touch on in a moment. But that is what we've been looking at. When we come to chapter 7, it changes. That is sort of part 2 of Daniel, and it is the prophetic evidence, uh, truth, uh, the prophetic word of God as what was happening and what was coming that was given to Daniel. And that goes all the way from chapter 7 through chapter 12. Now, again, we do have some sections in there that are very much for Daniel right at that moment. Uh, we will find, for example, that uh, when we get to chapter 9, we come to one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. And we want to know that prayer. It is an incredible prayer. But the re most of it is looking at the future. And I want to say that Daniel, when he approached this and heard it from the Lord, didn't say, well, that's really interesting. I think I'll write a book on prophecy. It upset him so badly that he had to get over it. It was something he knew was going to happen, and it concerned him greatly. And we'll touch on why it concerns him and why it should concern us. Uh, it's wonderful to know that those who are in the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and are loved by his Father and by him, and loved and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we are coming to an eternal kingdom that will have no end and is beyond anything we can imagine. But we also have to know that those who were living in Daniel's time who were not going in that direction, and all of the things that were going to come on the earth to deal with people in judgment upset Daniel. And it should upset us. We should be concerned. It is not a happy time. Now, I'm not saying you should go around. But we have to know that this time we are in should motivate us knowing that God is going to be faithfully carrying out what he says. And that as we do that, we go in the pieces. We, I'm doing a second Samuel over at Fredericksburg Bible Church now in the first hour. And one of the things about uh, David is that David lived in peace with God and he knew how to wait upon the Lord and be still. 
That doesn't mean some of the things did not get his attention and upset him. But we, we need to know that dire things are happening, but at the same time we need to have the hope of the Lord knowing that he, you are in his kingdom. We are, and our key is in this time that we are struggling with that we be a light in a very dark time. Now the uh, other thing that we want to know when we come to this is that God in one sense lays out human history in Daniel like no other book except the Revelation. In Daniel, as we said, you have one through six, which is about Daniel's life. There is a prophecy there. But then in seven through 12, we have, as it were, four great prophetic sections. They all tell us about things to come, our human history. The interesting thing is, before we get into this, that there are two passages in Daniel that lay out human history, the history of the people that are created in the image of God. And uh, it kind of makes me think of uh, the uh, book, A Short, uh, a short uh, History of Time by Steve Hawking. He was a British uh, physicist, brilliant guy. I just wish you to come to the Lord. Really a very nice guy, and he overcame all kind of things. Well, God gives us a brief history of our time, of human time. And in this particular book, in one sense, he gives it to us twice. First in chapter 2, we looked at it. And it's was pictured in these marvelous figures, uh, the, the, the head of gold, and the, the, the silver, and then the bronze, and the iron, and the toes, this magnificent figure, so much so that Nebuchadnezzar went right out and uh, had one built. But uh, we have to know that this picture is strictly how man who is without God. And when Daniel deals without God, he really says these are people who either have the heart of a beast or have no heart at all. The heart, in the Old Testament, the word is the lame. In the New Testament, the cardia. Our heart is where we make up our mind and act. And we have a new heart, thank God. If you go to uh, Daniel chapter uh, 8, I mean not Daniel, but uh, Romans chapter 8, chapter 7, you really get into that. But there are many other passages on the heart God has given us. And he changes our heart, or gives us a heart, Daniel handles it both ways, when we put our faith in him. And we're going to see some of that tonight. And the, uh, one of the heart changes we see is one that amazes us. And we'll, we'll come to that. But at any rate, in Daniel, you have all of human history and all of the heart decisions that were made to make it up. The total of it, the short history in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 7. And we looked at 2 with all the wonderful, the figure, the bronze, the gold, and all of that. But at the end of both of them, there is a sudden crash. Because human history is going to end. And it is my considered opinion, for what it's worth, that we are in that time. I think we are close enough that uh, if not our children, I keep saying that we may live, and I better put it, they may live. Maybe we'll live that long. We don't know. But I do believe we are in a generation that will see, as it were, the coming of these things and the coming of the Lord. And there are reasons for that. We'll touch on some of it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But it's going to happen, I'll tell you that. That you can, you can take to the bank, as it were. People do feel in this time, as we come to the second part of Daniel, feel and know that things are not going well. Some are believers and know it. Some are unbelievers and they still know it's not happy. I mentioned uh, before to this group that Phyllis Ann and I, the last time we were in New York City, I lived there as a boy, pastored there for a number of years, right in uh, downtown Manhattan at Calvary Baptist Church. 
And Phil and I really enjoyed our time there. But we picked up something this time, and this has only been about two and a half years ago now that we were there. We were up there for actually the uh, crowning, or not crowning, you shouldn't say that, the celebration of the uh, entering of the new pastor that was coming to Calvary. Uh, and he's one of our guys, one of our disciples. When we were there, he's from India, marvelous preacher. And Abraham Joseph is the pastor now. We're there for that. But one thing, it hit me. And we were in Upper Manhattan on the east side, which is supposed to be the side that's really where the money rolls and everything's calm and wonderful. You know, Lower Manhattan may be in trouble, and Brooklyn's always in trouble. The Queens, who knows? But uh, the Upper, uh, as it were, Manhattan on the east side is supposed to be a marvelous place. But as we walked around, we all picked up something. People were absolutely quiet. Nobody was talking much. Mm. It was like something terrible had happened. Reminds me of Simon and Garfunkel's song, uh, The Sound of Silence. And it really fits. They were prophetic, by the way. I don't, I don't think they were believers. I'm pretty sure they weren't. But they... They could read culture like nobody else and then write music for it. That is something that others picked up. As I got ready for this evening, one of the things that uh, came back to mind was something that we uh, picked up about what was going on more than we realized it from one of our regular visitors to Calvary Baptist Church. The Calvary is right on West 57th Street. It's Kenny Carter from Carnegie Hall. Uh, they've torn that building down. They've built a new one. They're putting a new church in it. It's a condo and all that razzmatazz. But anyway, it's, it's in a beautiful, uh, West 57th Street, a beautiful part of Manhattan. And when we were there, we would, particularly on Wednesday night, we had a prayer meeting and a Bible study. We'd have very interesting people show up. We'd often have, uh, we were probably 55% African-American in the church. The elder board, I, I was the only white guy on the board. And, uh, what a great board. I love working with that group. I miss them. And uh, the, the, this made it a unique church. And so some, we had a number of presidents of African and prime, uh, countries that we, when they come, they'd always come to Calvary. And uh, anyway... But there was another guy who came often, and we sort of got to know him. I'd known him reading about him. He was a senator from Oregon, and his name was Mark Hatfield. He's a committed believer. And we'd see him occasionally, and I'll never forget the last time I saw him. It was right before he had an article that was published at a rally they were having for something in Chicago. As I went up with him on the elevator after our Bible study and prayer meeting that day, Phyllis was already upstairs. We talked a bit, but he had a sadness about him. And it's just, you know, you could tell it. He, I'd never seen him quite that way. A few weeks, actually a few months later from Chicago, he <clears throat> made this statement in a speech, and I cut it out. He had been there for this political rally and, you know, whomp up the troops. He said, we want to believe that our nation and its leaders are right, just, and pure. We want to put our country beyond the reach of God's judgment. But obviously, we know he went on to say that it is not. As a committed Christian, Mark Hatfield was seeing where we were going, and we were headed for God's judgment. Daniel makes that a sure thing, because it is a book about judgment. But it also is a book that promises those who are faithful unto death that they will not only receive a crown of life, but a life that we cannot imagine. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, eye has not seen, neither has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things God has prepared for them who love him. So let's go on with that tonight. And so we turn to Daniel chapter 7. We're starting that new section. This is a prophetic section. Now I want us to uh, 
know a little bit more about this section. There are actually four great prophetic presentations in chapter 7 through 12. The first one that comes in the first year, it says, and this is in chapter 7, and that's kind of where we are tonight. I don't know how far we'll get that. We're not going to worry about that. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as, and really this uh, verse 28, it, uh, it, it really is, uh, it, it, it's, is more than just the mind. It's in his thinking that he saw uh, uh, in his thinking, in his mind, as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. First thing to know is this came in Belshazzar's first year. Do you remember who Belshazzar was? This is the king from chapter 5 who had the right. Right. This is the last king of Babylon uh, under the Babylonian rule. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was, of course, not the first one. He was the second one, but he was the greatest one. But that, this Belshazzar was the last one. And he saw on the wall many, many tickled, boy, uh, waited, waited, and wanting. And that's what it really said. But God also gave prophecy at that time. Now, he was, uh, as it were, uh, the, going to be over Babylon until 539. He is the guy who will be living when the new nation beater came along. And this guy is a Persian. He's actually Medo-Persian. And uh, anybody tell me who he was? Starts with a C. Cyrus. Cyrus. That's Cyrus. Cyrus is a great man, by the way, and I am not unconvinced that he is, I, I think he may well be a believer, became a believer, and we have other things to deal with. I know that Nebuchadnezzar did, and we'll see that tonight. And that's kind of an interesting thing. So, but the first prophecy comes in the first year of Belshazzar. Now, uh, that is recorded in chapter 7. Then we, he started, by the way, in 556 to uh, rule. Uh, we won't worry about a lot. There are a lot of dates here, and I love dates, but sometimes Phil said, don't tell me so many dates. Uh, I won't do that, sweetie. <laughs> anyway, secondly, you have the uh, third year of Belshazzar, which is going to be 553, and this will be in chapter 8, and this is the next prophetic section. And so we will look at that. The third, Belshazzar and Babylon, they're gone, and the Persians are running the show, and Darius is over Babylon. Now, Darius is not Cyrus. Darius was under Cyrus, and Cyrus made him the, as it were, mayor par excellent over the city of Babylon. And so he's running that show. And in that place in his first year, which would have been 539, in the ninth chapter, we have the third prophecy. And to me, that is my, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And we will really love that. Because in that chapter, we're going to see in a very small presentation the rest of history. Now, we're going to see all of that in these chapters, starting at chapter, as it were, 7. But this, he has the, the full view at 7 through 12, but then he comes back and occasionally he'll say, look at this, because I'll tell you everything about this at this point. The next, the uh, fourth one, the last one, is in the third year of Darius, and that is 536. And I might mention something about that. We believe, and I hold this, and I may be wrong, that Daniel started in his internship to become a, a uh, political figure, a wise man in the Babylonian government. He started it in uh, about the time he was 16, at least the training for it. That was normally, it was either 16 to 18 years of age where you went to the university. 
he is going to be there until at least we know five, the third year of Darius, which is 536. And that is going to make him in the early 80s. We're, I'm not going to put anything definite down, but somewhere between 80 and 85. In that situation, we know that uh, he is uh, not going to go back with the people of God to Judah. That must have been a heartbreak. Can you imagine? And if you go through, we're going to look at this in this. He loved Jerusalem. His prayer. Huh. It's chapter, uh, I mean, nine. He, the way he loves that city. And yet God said, you're not going back. But he will go back eventually. I promise you. We're doing, uh, as I said, Second uh, Samuel right now, which is the life of David as the king. And what blows me out, out of the sky on David is, God says David is, you know, the king par excellence. And you go on in the prophecies, and all of a sudden in Ezekiel, for instance, 36, and some of these great prophets are much later, you start talking about the millennial kingdom. And of course, that's the thousand years that Christ is going to raise here on earth. Israel will be Israel, and all other nations will bow down. And guess who is the prince over Israel on earth? Daniel. Think about that. Daniel's coming back. And that just blew me away. I, I've been working on that all week going, yippee. <laughs> so anyway, that is what we're going to look at. So we will start this morning looking at this afternoon. It's been a long day. Uh, <laughs> chapter, uh, we'll start this in chapter 7. And uh, we will, we read the first verse and we'll go to others. And if you have a question, ask because we would like to uh, try to answer the questions that come. Anything before we go on? Now remember, we are in, as it were, the uh, time of the reign of Belshazzar, who had demoted Daniel. Daniel was number one wise man, all-time wonderful guy under Nebuchadnezzar. But when he, this guy takes over, who is really uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, he takes over, he sends Daniel back to count probably uh, uh, gold in the treasury or something, but he doesn't have, he doesn't have a real neat point. But God says, don't worry, Daniel, you'll have something to do. And he does. And that is what we find him having to do. He said that he had dreams and visions. Verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now Daniel had some dreams that I'll guarantee you would have me up or hiding under the bed, or whatever. They, they are really something. And this one, he has these four winds of heaven. He starts seeing them. And these winds of heaven are going to be the winds that move nations and uh, stir things up, and they come from God. But what they're going to stir up are four great beasts coming up from the sea. Now, what is the sea? Anybody tell me what the sea is often symbolic of in prophetic literature? Humanity. People. Humanity. What kind of humanity? Uh, people. People. And usually it's Gentile people. but It could be Israel, but usually it's Gentile, but it's people. Exactly, Pat. And there are four great beasts who come out of these. And these, this is it, guys. This is going to be the last great grouping of humanity on planet Earth before the king comes back and cleans house and deals with everything. And so they come from the sea. That is, they come from the Gentile world. Now, remember in chapter 2, you have another image, as it were, uh, not of a beast, but of a metallic man. This is the same image. The one in chapter 2 is how we look at it. We look at all of our, our leaders that's made of gold. Some of them think they're made head of gold right now that they aren't. They're about to find out they're not even tinfoil. But uh, anyway, that's what we have in chapter 2. 
Here we have how God sees them. This is the view from heaven. Two is the view from earth. And the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. Now, that's, if you're going to be a, a beast, that's not a bad deal. You can fly and eat things and, you know, handle everything. Fly and soar. Huh? Fly and soar. So, roar and soar. Roar and soar. That's good. Roar. Yeah, I like that. That's what he's going to do. And I kept looking until the wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. Now this doesn't happen any other place. Who is this looking at, by the way? Who would you say? The four great kingdoms and Daniel. Babylon. Babylon, yeah. And what, what great king would be the great king? Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. Remember chapter 6 in, in uh, go, not chapter 6, but uh, chapter 4 in uh, Daniel? Chapter 4 is the account of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. And we need to know that he's dealing with somebody who was a beast but who had become a man. He's standing on his feet like a man and a human mind, and this term for mind in chapter, verse 4 is heart. A human heart was given to him. One of the things God points out is that the heart is where we make up our mind. And God says for people who don't trust in him and for beasts, period, they're not supposed to trust any. They really don't have a heart in that sense. A heart is a spiritual entity. But once we trust in Christ, we have, now the Bible does say we have an old heart, that is an old decision making. But it's not the spiritual heart that God gives us. And again, we go over to Romans chapter 8 and we find that out. And so this beast that's become a man is given a heart. And the the Actually, it's in Aramaic, but the word is very similar. The uh, lave of the, of the human being is where that person makes up their mind and wants to have one that is spiritual, has trusted in the Lord God, and they are given a new heart. And this king had a new heart. And that is a vital thing to say. And you know that as you study it. And he can stand like a man. And so that's just God's way of saying, I didn't lose all. <laughs> One of them is trusted in me. Verse 5 says, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Now, we've got a question here I need to ask you. Arise, devour much beef, meat. Now, I need to ask you a question. Um, who are they who make this question? The Bible doesn't tell us who asked this or says it. Notice that? It says, uh, they said to it. Who do you think it is? I need help on this, by the way, because every time I come to it, it's, I, I don't know who it is. Who might it be? Could it be Persia? Well, apparently it's a spiritual being. We are, are talking about heaven is directing the show. Um, and it could be. It could, that's a good thought. It could be uh, uh, the, his, his allies on earth. That's very possible. It's also possible in Daniel we meet a lot of those beings that uh, we uh, would like to have around us to take care of us. What are they? Angels. 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 That's right. Angels. We don't know really who it is, but someone God is. Isn't the bear? Wouldn't the bear be Cyrus? Well, the the bear is, but the, it's it being told on? this. It could be. Let, let's look at it again. I think it would be. Uh, he says, uh, and they said to it's plural, and they said, "Arise, devour much meat," and it, they are saying that to the bear, apparently. The bear that rise eat much meat. 
Well, you can think about it. If you come up with something great, I'd love to know it, okay? Tell me about it. So the bear is, we do know what the bear is as far as government. And Cyrus would be the first leader of it, but it, it covers also more because it goes on to tell us something, gives us a clue. And after I kept looking, and behold, uh, no, I got I got ahead of myself. Five, and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said, Rise and devour much meat. Now, it has three ribs in its mouth. Well, what do we have here? Bears like to eat things, by the way. They they just will eat anything. Our oldest son has a place up in Montana, and it's right near the Canadian border. And there are a lot of grizzlies, great browns that come around. And uh, one thing they always watch is for the grizzlies, because grizzlies, they're hungry. They'll eat the bark off a tree, but they'll eat you and me as quicker than that. Okay, so could the, could the three ribs be, uh, let me see, what would that be? Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt? Yeah, three, it, it, it could be. Probably, yeah, I think it's conquered? most people hold Babylon and uh, Lydia. Lydia. Actually, they hold which media would be uh, the Medo-Persian right. Empire uh, is is the one that uh, uh, is 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 really doing the the biting and they the bear it would seem to be. Uh, having, as it were, first eaten Medo, Media, and Persia. They, they, he took over, and he brought these two together. And we'd have to go back into Cyrus, who took over the Medes and the Persians. He took, and he made them one nation. By the way, his uh, father-in-law was the king of per Media, uh, Media. You don't want to be his father-in-law. So, Well, wasn't the successor of Xerxes? Artaxerxes, yeah. yeah, he will be one of the successors. He's the one that attacked uh, Greece. Yeah, later does Greece. We'll come to Greece in a minute. Yeah, this is apparent, and it could be. Uh, it, it looks like these three, well, they're first there are three that the bear defeats, and that the, the three main kingdoms that make up his kingdom are the uh, Medo-Persian kingdom, Armenia, Persia, and Babylon, he takes Babylon as well. So, but that at least we know there are three countries that he takes, and probably it's those three. But it could be some others. We we don't have a designator on that, so it could be. But the main thing is he is gobbling up things. Then we come to uh, a uh, another beast, and after this, I kept looking, and behold another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird and beast also had the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it what nation would that be Greece. alexander the great yeah and his four generals after him that's exactly right that's exactly what i think we're doing his father of course was philip but philip did not conquer anything but greece proper and then when Alexander comes along at 23 years of age, he begins to conquer at 334, and he uh, is he dies at uh, about 337, uh, I think it is. I'll have to look up the date. He dies. Actually, he'd gone all the way to almost to India, and. Uh, he, he died, actually came back as far as Babylon. He died outside of Babylon of a fever. But he had four generals who took over, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Philip, and Antagonus. Antagonus becomes important because he is going to be one we see in chapter 8. But this is another kingdom, the kingdom of Greece. The last one is, let's go to... Uh, Verse 7, and uh, let's see, Neil, would you read verse 7 for us? <coughs> After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong, 
and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled down the, the remainder with its feet. And it was and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. What are we talking about here? Rome. Rome. Yeah, we're talking about Rome. And I love Roman history to read it, but it's uh, sort of a bloody thing. And so this is going to be the nation that lasts. And we could talk a lot about, spend a lot of time talking about this nation. But the point is, it became the first world power as we think of it. And it conquered everything as far as went beyond India. He conquered everything. He never got over to further, uh, we would say, Western China. But anyway, they, it became a, a mighty kingdom. Now, when you study the kingdom of Rome and the empire of Rome, you need to think through uh, how long it existed. It, a way to remember its length is to know that it started about the same time David began to rule in Jerusalem. And that is about 1000 BC, actually. David began to rule at 1010. But, and so it begins there. And it goes through all kinds of periods. And if you ever want to read about Roman history, I'll ask, I'll give you a list of books uh, that you might enjoy reading. We do know that, of course, he, uh, the, it was at one time, it was a republic. That was toward the end before it became an empire. Another time it was a kingdom. Another time it, it began as sort of a tribal group, at really about uh, 950 B.C. And it was a place that uh, they didn't begin to conquer everything at once, but finally they began to spread, and we won't go into all of that. But when they started moving, they made people know about it. Now, the... Uh, if you follow the history of Rome and its conquest, it moves, as it were, from the areas around Rome up on the Danube. Then it goes, as it were, toward Israel. And it comes next uh, to the uh, area of what we would call Greece. But the, remember, Greece is two parts, Achaia and Macedonia. Rome first comes into Macedonia, and this becomes important. It comes into Macedonia in 132, and it conquers, literally, it conquers Macedonia, and then shortly after that conquers everything out down through Achaia. Macedonia is where you have Thessaloniki and some of the other cities that are in, in, in the sense in our uh, east of them. And it comes on down, they take Athens, they take everything. And that was in 132. They then continue to move, and finally they take Egypt, and they take uh, what was the Phoenician Empire. They take uh, the area that Israel is in. And Israel becomes an interesting thing, because Rome takes Israel in 63 B.C., the guy who takes it is a, a general named Pompey. And Pompey had one thing in mind. He wanted to be the first Caesar. Well, he didn't make that. Julius, of course, made that. And he crossed the Rubicon and came in and then, of course, was assassinated. The next, the true first Caesar is not Julius. It is really going to be the... Uh, Caesar, who changed his name to uh, the August one, and that was Caesar Augustus. And he ruled, then you have Tiberius, then you have Caligula, and all of that. But this is the beast that he's talking about here. Rome took over, as it were, the civilized world. They took over anybody they took on. Now, the uh, question is, all of these have disappeared. No, they really haven't. Uh, they, one of them is staying, and uh, you, you see that we can study it in Daniel, but we can also study it in history. You all remember who Francis Schaeffer was? Yes. He wrote uh, 
a lot of wonderful books and so forth. Well, Francis Schaeffer wrote a great book on the history of Rome. And his whole point, the main idea of the book is Rome is still existing under the thin crust of dirt over the earth. Rome is still there waiting to come back. And he saw Never that. conquered. Never conquered. Never that's conquered. right. Never, and they really just gave it up. But they, they are going to come back. And that's something that we will see. And that brings us to the Antichrist and what we find with that. Now... One other thing I'd like to say about uh, this is that uh, Rome as a power fell in uh, 410, the, uh, what we call Western Rome, and then the Eastern Roman Empire in 476. Now they kept going on and sort of doing things, but they really fell at that point. But they didn't go away, they're still around, and that's what we pick up after this. When we come to this, we begin to deal with uh, not just an empire, but a personality. And that personality is one that we, well, let's look at it. Verse 8 of chapter 7, and uh, he's thinking about all these things. And let's go 7, or let's go down and we... Uh, Let's read 7 and 8. Phyllis Ann, would you do that real loud? After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great beasts. Okay, what was Uttering great boasts. Boasts, yeah. Okay, with this we go into what, uh, up through verse 6, <clears throat> we, we know that history. In 7 and 8, we look at something that has been, but still is. And we have to remember, Rome is still waiting to come back. That's what they're talking about, Rome rising up again? Exactly. They're, in fact, they're uh, uh, talking about it right now. They're having a meeting over in Switzerland at Nova. Though they get together, they, they are planning it. So let's just talk about that a minute. This is one that's going to come back, and we'll talk about that. Because right now, that is the world's push. The world wants to be one world. They want to be a single entity and be over all things. Uh, we have had people try that, but this is a very serious effort. And uh, what's going on right now in Europe is the people that would like to see it become a reality are, are having one of their many meetings. <clears throat> now, they are going to try to do this through uh, power uh, economically and, and through various things. But the thing we need to understand is they're very serious about it. And I get, I try to, every time I see an article on this, I try to grab it. And what we have, we have a, a guy named Klaus, Klaus Schwab. He's German. And Klaus Schwab is, is moving us toward one world government. Uh, <coughs> Harari, who is an Israeli, he's also in that. And they're moving toward us having one world government. And this one world government is to, uh, as it were, be over all things. And I, I didn't bring any <coughs> articles tonight, but one of them by uh, Klaus Schwab says, well, we will be over the government, the one world government will be over all, but everybody's going to like it. Well, that's, of course, not true. But uh, anyway, that's what we have happening. Now, who's behind this? We ought to stop a moment. 
Satan. Yeah, exactly. We got to understand. Since Adam and Eve decided to, you know, do what God said don't do, and we man fell, we have been in a battle. God has been in a, in a sense of battle between himself and Satan, and Satan is always trying to take over. And you can go through uh, the Old Testament. We can go to Ezekiel chapter. 37, 38, these passages that talk about Satan trying to take over. The revelation is very clear about it, and you're going to see him in that when you go there. Here we'll touch on it. I said in the beginning that uh, we were in a time that I think we are in the time that this is going to begin to happen. And uh, <coughs> what is uh, the number one guy, the guy that's going to take off the world, what does the scripture call him? Antichrist. Antichrist. And we've always laughed about that. We didn't laugh, but we said, well, you know, we're, we're going to take off. I picked up an ad, just got it. It was, uh, uh, it's for children, and it's from TikTok. And, and it, the point of it is, it's a cartoon that they can get that's about the Antichrist, <coughs> and it's about him winning. And that's now, and that's on national. They're talking about it on <coughs> national television. Well, we are there, and we are in a time when people would like to see him take over and forget everything else. We'll get into some of this as we go on. Now, at this point, Daniel has seen these things, and he's seen the ten horns. What are the ten horns? Power. Well, the horn always looks at Karen, or a horn always looks at power. And this is apparently looking at ten nations that will eventually form what we call the European Union. Now, I've got files and files on the attempt to make a European Union. Well, finally, they are going to get it going. That's why I don't worry as much about Russia and China right now. They're eventually going to come in. It's going to come out of Europe. And this is what he's seeing. Now, the guy who's really going to run it is going to, uh, he'll be one of the rulers, one of the head of states of the ten nations. These ten nations are going to be what was the old Roman Empire. And you say, well, there were 12, and then there were 11. and Well, there's going to be 10, but it's going to cover the same ground. Now, this individual is going to do something. And this passage talks about it. There are 10 horns, and what does he do <coughs> to make himself known? He's going to pull three of them out from their roots. Right, take them down and take them out. God is going to explain that in a minute. Now, in verse 9 it says, uh, or verse 8, And when I was contemplating the horns, we talked about the horns, and beast has ten horns. Behold, another horn, a little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots. That is, they're gone. They're not going to you know, grow back up. They're pulled out rather by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. He's a big mouth ruler. At any rate, and so at this point, you have the players on the field. Now, they're the ones that are going to challenge the earth. And I believe they're, they may all be alive right now, but that is what is going to come. And they're going to try to, to be the world rulers. And they're going to be, of course, against the Lord. And they're going to uh, you know, try to either ignore him or they'll go to war with him eventually. The next thing we see is uh, God switches to heaven. And he wants us through Daniel, or takes Daniel to heaven. And he wants Daniel to know they're not going to lose. Verse 9, it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white, 
white snow and the hair on his head was like pure wool. The throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire flowed, was flowing and coming out from before him. And a thousand upon thousands, thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads. Greek, this is Moriades, Moriadon, Kiliades, Kiliades, a thousand times, thousands times, ten thousand times, ten thousand, were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were opened. Now, what we have set up in heaven is first, who's there, and uh, what, how, what they are uh, sitting on, as it were, and the thing is, the, we have the Ancient of Days takes his seat, and he's sitting upon one of the thrones that's set up, and he's described. Now, who is the Ancient of Days? God. It's God, yeah. And it's which, though, Father or Son? Father. father, yeah. It's the Father. We know this. He's God the Father. And the Son is going to be there, but he's on his throne. Now, the Revelation indicates that we will never see God as he is, in fact, that his glory will always keep us from seeing him. I take it that means he's on the throne and we can see the glory, but we cannot necessarily know all of his features. But he does appear to us. How does God appear to us? Through his son. His son, yeah. Remember, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they are all very God of very God. And he appears. And this is being set up. And what we're setting up at this point is not only a, a reign, because it's going to sit on thrones, but a judgment. And this is to assure Daniel and all others who study this, like us, that God will judge the earth, and nothing will stop that. And it talks about the purity is hair, and we could go through all that, and it's worth doing. But one thing here that we don't usually see when we have these pictures of the Lord, even in the Revelation, is it says that its wheels were burning fire and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. What do you think that indicates? Judgment? Yes, I think it does. And, and we'll see that later, it does. It's judgment. And then the next thing we see coming, that there are thousands upon thousands attending him. Now, who is in the eternal glory? Go ahead, Pat. Me. Me. Yeah, all of us will be there, and it will be an incredible, incredible thing. Uh, the passage I love to parallel with this is found over in the Revelation, and uh, you find it in the Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5 ought to be studied together in that. Get out of 1 John here. First John, I'll look at you later. And it uh, it says that uh, let's pick it up where we want to look. This is another scene that shows heaven. And uh, uh, in front of the throne in verse uh, five, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, why don't you read that, Phil, if you would. Just five. No, go ahead and read it through the end of the chapter. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, and the four living creatures, each one of them, having six wings are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is 
and who is to come. Okay, that's the scene in heaven. A very similar scene because it really is basically the same scene. There's no fire there. Yeah, the fire is unique. Why? Because of judgment. Because judgment. this is getting ready for judgment to come. That's right. Now, is that fire getting ready now? It would seem so. Okay, back to our passage in 7. And in 11, Daniel, verse 11, and then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. This is the big mouth, Antichrist. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, all of this is looking at what comes to the end. It comes in the judgment. Now, the judgment that God brings is going to be in sections. First, there's going to be a judgment we know at the return of Christ. Then there will be, after the millennium, there's going to be the final judgment where all who resisted God are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and this individual, the Antichrist, is one of them. And that is what Daniel is seeing. Now, the ones that have dominion, I take it at this point that uh, there are people who make up kingdoms uh, who are going to, in a sense, be able to have an opportunity during the millennium. And it says that dominion was taken away, but the extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And so uh, we, God is going to judge, and his judgment's going to come first when he returns. He's going to deal with everybody on earth, and we'll see that in the Revelation 19. We'll see it here. Then secondly, you're going to have the thousand-year reign, but then after that, you have a new heaven and a new earth, and everybody else that's going to be judged will be judged at that point. Now, this event tells Daniel that God is going to take care of these things that are coming, of the beasts and so forth, that he is going to, to take care of judgment. And what was Daniel's attitude at this point? Let's look at verse 15 down. We'll stop with this, but I... He was grieved in spirit. He was grieved. My spirit was distressed within me, and the vision in my mind was kept, kept alarming me. Now, that you need, for next time, we'll start at 15... Think about why was he upset about this. And that's when we started talking about that at the beginning. He, he, two things upsetting. One is he doesn't understand all of it. We can feel with that one. But we'll find next time he will explain what we are seeing and facing. Well, I have a question. Yes, ma'am. It looks to me like verses 13 and 14 should have been an encouragement. Oh, I think it is. I think it is. And we'll, we'll deal with that. But uh, I want to go down to this because he's upset about what he's seen. And we will uh, start. Well, let's go ahead. No, we're out of time. 13 and 14 are what we see about him taking over. But when we get to 15, he's distressed. Now, I'd be really excited about him coming the Lord coming back, but Daniel's upset about that, no question.